Long on promises and short on details, the throne speech promises building back better. Well, let's see the light of day. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. Governor General Julie Payette laid out the Liberals' plan forward in the speech. The COVID-19 pandemic took center stage along with promises of lots of spending. Now is not the time for austerity, according to the Prime Minister. Promises of creating one million jobs in the knowledge economy, extensions of programs, and an overhaul of employment insurance to help those in the contract and gig economy. Opposition parties were critical of the speech's lack of clarity, and it will require one of them to support the Liberals to avoid a federal election. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we break down the speech and see where it may lead Canada. Daniel Fields is a senior economist with the Conference Board of Canada, and he joins us now. And Daniel, it's fairly ambitious to create one million jobs. If it was successful, where would that leave us in terms of employment pre-COVID? Well, actually, right right now, uh, we we see that the gap is about a million. So we would that would if, an, if one million jobs were created, that would bring us pretty much back to the February pre-COVID levels of employment. We saw about about three million drop. At the, at the peak of the, of the COVID, and and it, we actually did see a recovery, but right, right now we do see that there is about uh, about a one million job gap, and now we expect that gap to be closed uh, by the end of 2021, uh, based on our current uh, forecast. Now, is that does that take in, into account the throne speech or just what you're? No, it does not. No, <laughs> sorry. We uh, yeah, we actually finished. Uh, we wrapped our forecast on Friday, so we. Uh, have not uh, been able to analyze fully the throne speech, and and I think you mentioned it in your intro that uh, there's very little details. There's more. It's more. Uh, mm-hmm. These are some ideas what we want to want to want to do. So we're, what we're really looking forward to is that is that fall uh, update, which we are hoping will have uh, more details on that. Now, uh, the, the the throne speech talks about a focus on youth and women in the knowledge economy, and with those jobs, how will that bring them bring them uh, up? Uh, I guess financially. Well, certainly, uh, one thing we look at is is uh, at Commerce Board, and they mentioned it in in the in the throne speeches, looking at early childhood education, and uh, I do see that uh, that could certainly investments in that area can certainly improve the labor participation rate for women, and which uh, also, which will definitely help employment levels grow. And then we've seen also that that will help benefit uh, productivity growth going forward as as, as children are are exposed to that earlier on. So uh, we definitely see that that helping. Now, the uh, the throne speech also talks about expanding EI to, to those in the gig economy. And has the employment sector changed so much that these people are being left out? Um, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so the... Uh, sorry, can you repeat the question, actually? Sorry. Expanding uh, EI to those in the, in the gig economy, has the employment sector changed so much that these people have been left out? Uh, it's possible that there there are some dated uh, policies in, in mind with DEI. I, I don't I don't know the last time it was really uh, taken a deep dive into analyzing it. So I think it's definitely possible that's the case. And uh, looking to make sure that these dollars are as effective as possible is definitely something worth considering. Daniel Fields is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe. He's a senior economist with the Conference Board of Canada. As we chat about the uh, throne speech that uh, was dropped. On Wednesday, now the conference board supports extending the uh, the CEWS. Why is that? Well, uh, we're looking at anything that will help uh, businesses uh, keep stay stay open and, and keep hiring employees. So anything that does that right now, we're seeing as a, as, a, as positive. 
Now, it's certainly possible that maybe the CEWS isn't the most perfectly effective policy. However, it's still super early on that. Mm -hmm. We still don't necessarily have all the numbers yet and all the data. And at at this time, it's basically just, uh, and it happened in March, is basically just like get something out there, at least something's better than nothing kind of thing. So uh, I definitely think there's there's time to to really look at the program, and and we would love to see more uh, data and more analysis on is this being as effective as possible? But at the end of the day right now, we, we see that as, as a definitely a pro to um, keeping businesses open and keeping uh, businesses uh, employees intact. Now, a national pharmacare program came up in the throne speech, and, and we've heard this before. I, I'm wondering, if you think back in the past, financially, what kind of a cost would that have been for the, for the government? Oh, that's a great question. Um, we've always been meaning to look at that more closely, and I don't uh, believe we actually have done the full analysis of how much that would cost. Um, certainly, uh, out-of-pocket expenses for drugs, um, based on, I, I haven't quite seen the numbers, but it's certainly in uh, maybe, I'm not going to try to look at a, a report, I'm trying to look back, and uh, anyway, it's maybe, maybe around like 30, 30 billion is roughly, uh, based on a recent federal report that I've seen that shows that, that, that is, uh, that's from the public, parliamentary budget office. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so it's definitely a, an area that I, I, we know that most countries that have uh, universal health care uh, that also have drug coverage. So it is something that we definitely is, is interesting. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it's how much will that cost and, and how will you pay for that? And that, that's the big question on most of this drone speeches. A lot of these measures we definitely support, and a lot of a lot of them are great. But it, it's a matter of how, how what are the costing like for these things? Yeah, and well, okay. The, the other side of the coin is uh, when you've got a lot of spending, you're going to need revenue. And and do you see any you know increase in revenue coming in from from this throne speech? Uh, I know they mentioned uh, taxes on the wealthy, um, but other than that, and I, I haven't really necessarily seen too much. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 reason with the, the tax on the wealthy is the one that is is a bit concerning. Um, it certainly, if if you, it, it basically doesn't necessarily uh, adjust for any behavior response. So uh, I know the Parliamentary Budget Office has mentioned, and we agree that it, it's definitely a riskier, uh, it's harder to project the, 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 the revenues that would come from such a tax. So um, relying on such a tax alone would would, uh, would be something that's a little riskier to do. Um, yeah, so the, the big question mark is, uh, is where would this, uh, where would the revenues come from? Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned behavior response. What is that? Oh, so basically, if if someone is really rich and uh, sees that there's a tax coming uh, and their operations mm-hmm. are in Canada, maybe they look elsewhere to go somewhere else and they'll go to somewhere else that does not have a wealth tax anymore. Now there are there are some some folks who who have profited quite well off this pandemic, and a tax on the wealthy probably wouldn't be. Uh, all that difficult for 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 Canadians to well swallow. Well, certainly that's why that's why it's definitely uh, a tax that uh, that is that is ta- talked about because uh, it's, it's the most palatable, right? It's it's, it's the tax on the one percent. It's the it's the it's oh, I'm not, no one is part of that group that so that you you always seem that yeah. it's very much okay. But uh, the question is, yeah, how much money can you can you can you gain from that, and it's, and how predictable is that is that revenue? So yeah, it's certainly. And if there's no behavior response, uh, absolutely. If, if you can get the money that you expect to get out of it, why not? Um, 
but it's just a matter of is that is that a very predictable uh, source of income. Now, you know, one of the other, uh, I guess, possible sources of wealth Canadians have, and, and we heard this before the throne speech, uh, was a possible uh, tax on equity in, in your home. And uh, apparently CMHC was looking into that before he saw the light of day. What kind of, what, what kind of an impact would that have? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I haven't really looked too much into. I'm not quite the housing expert that I wish I was, mm-hmm. but uh, certainly something that would uh, tax your equity would definitely make you pause and think and, and uh, reconsider that huge uh, home purchase that you're that you're making right now because the housing market right now is still uh, still growing quite strong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Daniel, I, I want to thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Daniel Fields is a senior economist with the Conference Board of Canada. Money minds are always keeping an eye on the bottom line. In this throne speech, can't really see the bottom. To get more perspective on the debt and deficit potential, I'm pleased to be joined by Professor Ian Lee of the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. And Ian, what are the pitfalls of trying to spend your way out of a big problem? Um, I, first off, I'm not one of those, quote, deficit hawks who says that all deficits are bad all the time, any time of the year or season. I'm certainly not in that camp. Deficits and debt are useful. I'm a former banker for 10 years in the 70s and 80s, uh, where I lent lent millions and millions of dollars to companies and to NGOs and consumers. So debt is is very, very product, can be very, very productive. But, you know, it's like anything, you know, you can, you can overdo it. You know, you can, one glass of wine will not uh, kill you, but, you know, you drink two bottles of it and you'll probably be dead sort of thing. So the key mm-hmm. word is balance and prudence. Um, now to your question. Uh, the, my, my concern is uh, that we are approaching at the uh, Governor of Canada level uh, a tipping point. And while I do believe and I accept the arguments that have been made in the past that, hey, listen, as the finance minister, past and present said, we have the lowest debt to GDP of the G7, so therefore it's okay. The problem with that argument, of course, is it's self-refuting. Because if you add on more debt because you're the lowest indebted, soon you will not be the lowest indebted anymore. And the logic for putting on more debt is, hey, we're very, uh, we're, we only have small amounts of debt. Mm-hmm. But if you keep borrowing on that basis... You won't be any longer be lightly indebted. And indeed, we've in, in three months, we went from 30% debt to GDP at the federal level. We went to uh, around 40, 45%, somewhere between 40 and 45. And if we continue at this level, and there's nobody talking about dialing back the deficit, in a year or two, we could be up to, within two years, we could be approaching the 65, 67% debt to GDP at the federal level that um, Kretschia and Merton uh, hit when they hit the wall, the fiscal wall, in um, 1995. So that's the first point. Mm-hmm. The second point is the the quote, the 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 phrase we hear over and over, the debt, to, uh, you know, we're lightly indebted, is profoundly misleading. And I'm saying that as somebody who has studied uh, this for 30 years or so. Um, the OECD, which is the think tank, as I like to call it, of the 34 high-income countries of West Europe, Canada, States, it's not a corporation. It's not funded by corporations. It's funded completely by the governments of 34 high-income countries, including Canada. They have an army of economists and statisticians and so forth. They compute, properly so, all government indebtedness as a percentage of GDP because there's only one taxpayer. 
There isn't a separate taxpayer for the federal government debt, another taxpayer for provincial debt, and yet another for municipal. So they put the three together and talk about total government debt as a percentage of GDP. And then that vaunted 30% vanishes. We were 87, 88% tied with some of the European countries, equal to the European countries, prior to COVID. And another two or three years of this, we'll be well over 100% debt to GDP, all over the government. And again, to make it clear, there's only one taxpayer. I pay federal taxes, I pay municipal taxes, I pay provincial taxes. And I am not an exception. That applies to everybody in Canada. And so that's the second problem. The third issue I want to bring up, because it's very important, is this uh, belief, and it's never been stated this boldly, but I'll put it out there. Well, yes, okay, there can be fiscal crises in those third world countries uh, that are unfortunately poor, but that can't happen to a first world country. Because you're wealthy and you're big and you're rich and all that good stuff. But that's not true. You can. Um, I mean, Weimar Germany in the 1920s, people say, well, that was a long time ago. But Germany was a very wealthy country in the 1920s, just as it is today. And they did go through a fiscal crisis so severe that many historians believe it led to the election, initial Mm -hmm. election of the National Socialist Party called the Nazis. Yeah. And uh, I'm not trying to suggest that we're going to go down to Nazism. That's not where I'm going. I'm trying to dispute or refute this myth that only poor countries can have fiscal crises. My favorite example is Argentina. In 1918, Argentina was one of the wealthiest countries in the world, wealthier than Canada on a per-person basis. And then in the 50s, under Juan Perón and Isabel Perón, the famous Evita of the Hollywood fame, They, in the name of inequality and looking after uh, gaps in society and so forth, they started to go deeply, deeply into debt, not one year, not two years, year after year after year. And they eventually, over a 20-year period of time or so, they drove down, they became, uh, created fiscal crises, and Argentina declined from a high-income, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, to the middle-income country it is today, with chronic fiscal crises, debt defaults, and currency collapses, where the currency goes down, the peso goes down, literally. 50 or 60 percent. Some people may listening may say, so what? Who cares? Mm -hmm. Well, we should all care because if the Canadian currency drops down into the 60s, uh, uh, 65 cents, 70 cents, it's going to make all of our imports, including the food that we import, because we do import a lot of food. And so what I'm saying is not that we shouldn't be helping people. Of course we should. Absolutely. That is the bipartisan consensus that I think has existed in this country, if not since 1867, certainly since the end of the Second World War. But what Mr. Trudeau is proposing in this uh, speech from the throne, which I watched from beginning to end and read from a hard copy text from the beginning to the end, is something going far beyond that. In fact, I think it's a, uh, it's a repudiation of the bipartisan consensus that existed between liberal party governments and conservative party governments uh, from throughout the history of our country. And he's, this, this was, this uh, throne speech went far beyond just addressing COVID. In fact, David mm-hmm. Rosenberg in an op-ed noted that two-thirds of all the items in the throne speech had absolutely nothing to do with the COVID crisis. At the very moment, we have lineups on Bronson Avenue in Ottawa that are 12, 16 hours long because of the testing problems. In other words, he was dealing with problems that are not a crisis and ignoring problems 
that could be, or when I say ignoring, at least not completely focusing on problems that need to be resolved immediately, such as the lack of shortage of money in the healthcare system that the premiers are screaming for, and of course the testing crisis that we have right now. Well, I, so that's I, my my sort of take on this. I, I'm kind of curious about the uh, the premiers because you know, it, it, you know, they're the, they're the ones who always say, well, money doesn't solve the problem, efficiency does. Yet, you know, they've got a problem. They've done a pretty bad job in, in particular with long-term care and they the, the only thing yeah. they see is more money more money that's the only that's their only yeah. answer yes um the this is something i believe me i've studied and studied and i've been talking about it in my classes and media interviews and so forth for a long time um health is the the elephant the monster in the room jeffrey mm-hmm. simpson the great distinguished globe and mail journalist wrote books on this and um and it's going to get worse because, because, and this is empirical, not an opinion, we're moving from a period of 12% of the population over 65 to 25% of the population. As one American demographer put it in a rather witty, uh, colorful way, he said, all of North America, Canada and the States, in about 20 years now or sooner, is going to look like Florida without the warm weather or the beaches. Because Florida today has one in four over 65. The rest of North America is going to catch up. Older people pay less taxes because their incomes have gone down, so they're in a lower tax bracket. And secondly, they consume, and the Kaihai data, Canadian Institute of Health Information data, empirically, vividly demonstrates the older you are, the more health care you consume on average. And I'm talking 65 to 75, and then 75 to 85, it just goes up dramatically, vertically, and then 85 plus, it just goes through the roof. $25,000 per person per year for people over uh, 85. I'm not suggesting this is bad. I'm just saying this is what's coming down the pipes. And so focusing on talking about, for example, um, subsidizing green cars so that um, the overwhelmingly, which are bought by upper middle class people that live in the Glebe and uh, Westboro and other very tony high income neighborhoods across Canada, it seems to me to be a grotesque misallocation of scarce resources and is not dealing with the real problem. We've got to focus on crisis in testing. We've got to focus on the wait, the long waiting lines mm-hmm. for health care and not just COVID treatment. And, and and long-term care. Just a quick metric for you. I had my knees done. I was on the waiting list for a very long time. I was on for a year and a half. Just routine. I had to get my knee replaced. And I, I thought, you know, this, you know, this is, and okay, I wasn't, it wasn't a life-threatening or terminal for sure. But this is the problem facing it. And so we've got to focus. We've got to do huge program review, in my view, like they did in 1995, uh, of the federal government, and they got to do it at the provincial government, and I would argue at the municipal government too. And you, and Don Drummond did it before with the Ontario government. And you allocate, you examine every program in the government and put it into one of three categories or buckets. Absolutely must have and must continue to con- with. Secondly, nice to have, but not absolutely essential. And the third category is we shouldn't be doing this because it's not, there's no bang for buck, eh, or it's frivolous, or it's unnecessary. So you have three categories. And I'm not doing that silly waste and fraud and abuse silly argument here from time to time. This is simply a recognition that all, not all programs are equal. Not all programs are equally efficacious. Not all, all programs are equally necessary. And we've got to focus because we are moving into an era of lower economic growth, which means lower taxes, because when your GDP goes down, that means government revenues are very tightly tied to the GDP growth rate. When GDP growth rate goes down or into recession, government revenues 
plummet. And so we don't have the luxury of growth that we had in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and even in the first decade. And, and so, and, and my final comment about the COVID and the spending is, although Mr. Trudeau and the government have been suggesting, without actually saying it, that we got to throw everything but the kitchen sink or plus the kitchen sink, because this is a problem for years and years to come, is nonsense. We are facing going into an era of serious, profound labor shortages. And this, the COVID crisis right now, yes, there is unemployment. I am not in denial about that. But this unemployment, I mean 12% or thereabouts, is going to vanish the moment they have a vaccine mm-hmm. or the moment they have universal testing in everybody's home, similar to a pregnancy test, or, and or the moment they've reduced, they have enough treatments to treat COVID, so it's reduced from the lethal, the lethal illness it is today to, to the level of, of the common flu. I think there's a combination there of three possibilities, and I'm not presuming any one, but vaccine and or instantaneous testing and or treatment therapeutic therapies. Uh, for the uh, being treated once you have it. So, you know, in, I, I, I'll go way out on a limb. Three years from now, I do not believe we'll be talking about unemployment in Canada. We desperately need immigration because we are facing profound labor shortages. So the crisis, the unemployment crisis right now that people need help is going to go away very, very soon, relatively speaking, in two or three years. Ian Lee of the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University joining us in the Unpublished Cafe as we're talking about the throne speech. And, you know, looking back at previous throne speeches in budgets that followed a major event, I'm thinking 9-11, I'm thinking the market crash of 08. What differs about this one compared to those? Um, There is a difference, of course. Um, 9-11 was very, when I say local, we thought it was for a while, and I was in California. I was in California on sabbatical um, uh, uh, teaching there because I took my sabbatical in California when 9/11 occurred, and everyone thought that I mean everyone thought that there were terrorists popping out of the woodworks around every corner and they were going to blow up every building, and it wasn't true. It was a localized, horrible, horrible, catastrophic, but localized to those four targets that were targeted, mm-hmm. and. And, and, and so there was a shock to the economy, and there's no question there was a shock. I mean, I remember going into shopping malls after 9-11, two weeks after, and the place was empty. I mean, completely yeah. empty. I had to buy a car. didn't have a car. I went into the car lot. There was not a soul there except the sales reps. And, uh, but th- it took a while. It took about a year or two. And then, of course, life returned. People started going back into airplanes and the shopping centers and so forth. In this instance, the critical difference, I think, is people are not going to return in large numbers to airplanes, bars, restaurants, etc., until until there is a vaccine or instantaneous, and I mean instantaneous testing, as in 15-minute testing, mm-hmm. that can be done by every person in society from their house. Uh, so that, or you walk into the dentist and they say, okay, stand out there and do the COVID test and then we'll wait 15 minutes and then you can come in and get your de- dentist appointment mm-hmm. so that we can truly isolate in real time every person that has it. And you isolate mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And you only isolate those who are sick, which is not all 38 million people. It's not even remotely close to 38 million people. It's a, it's a handful of people at any moment. So if you have an instantaneous test, uh, you can deal with that. Same with the airlines. You go to the airport, you cannot board the plane, get here two hours early, you have to take the COVID test before we'll let you enter the airport. You know, you can do things like that. So you can snuff out the, if you have instantaneous testing, 
you can snuff out within a reasonable period of time the virus because you starve it from new uh, uh, people right. to infect because you immediately isolate every person the moment they get tested and are discovered that they have it. You immediately quarantine them. And, and then they're all, as we speak, the death rate is going down across Europe and Canada and U.S. This isn't one of the untold stories. The death rate's been going down as the infection rate's been going up for a very good reason. A, yes, older people have truly internalized it. I am one of them. Mm-hmm. I stay in my house 99% of the time. I, I leave twice a week to get groceries. And then I walk every morning at 6 o'clock when there's nobody out there around the canal. Otherwise, I do not go out. I do not go into any building whatsoever. And there's lots of older people who are acting like that. Young people aren't. So that's one reason. Young people have much, much lower um, morbidities if they get COVID. And the second reason is that the medical system, medical doctors, hospitals, and so forth, have been innovating like crazy every day in every hospital everywhere and developing and testing and experimenting with repurposed drugs that were approved for something else. I saw one uh, medical doctor from one of the American hospitals, and he said, we've learned more in the last six months than we've learned in 20 years how to treat infectious diseases. So they've reduced the mortality of COVID. And I'm not trying to say it's a walk in the park. I'm not trivializing this at all. But they have been able to reduce the mortality, the morbidity of of the illness. So, you know, there there is progress, uh, but there is a big difference because it deals with everyone's health. Whereas, I mean, people that started to think after 9-11, once they got past the initial shock, yeah. I mean, two weeks later, started to realize, well, you know, there's not going to be a plane falling out of the sky and hitting my city next week. They started to realize that it was something that was a one-off. And it was affected over two cities, Washington, D.C., and New York City. And then, of course, they took all kinds of measures, as we know, at the airports and everywhere else. And, and so people started to realize that the risk of another terrorist attack, I mean, of a major, major terrorist attack taking down a huge building like the, the, the World Exchange Center was extraordinarily remote. The problem with this uh, crisis is that the, um, the virus mm-hmm. is invisible. It's unseen. You don't know where it is, and you don't know who's got it. So everybody's obviously freaked out by the fact that, you know, I won't go get tested. Listen to this. I will not stand in that line 12 to 14 hours to get tested, not because I'm in denial. I'm not going to stand in that line because there might be somebody in the line who's got COVID. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to stay in my house. There's nobody in my house except me. No cats, no dogs, no human life except me. I know I can't get COVID in this house. I stand in that line for 12 hours and I could, I'm exposing myself to getting COVID to get tested. So guess what? I don't. Hmm. Ian, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. Ian Lee is a professor with Carleton University's Sprott School of Business, and that leads to our unpublished vote question. Which opposition party do you expect to prop up the throne speech? The Conservatives, the New Democrats, or the Bloc Québécois, or none of the above? The Green Party doesn't have enough members to force a change. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. I want to thank Daniel Fields of the Conference Board of Canada and Ian Lee of Carleton's Sprott School of Business. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.